Uh, to be forgiven and to forgive is at the very heart of biblical Christianity. You might say it's God's nature put on display. We saw last week, Exodus 34 reveals God himself is uh, the one who forgives. And that's, that's what he leads with. Uh, Exodus 34 says he's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, sin, and transgression. The Lord Jesus Christ also declares that's the center of his mission. In Luke 19, uh, in a passage that you probably all know well, or a story you know well, uh, when everyone was stunned including Zacchaeus himself, that the Lord forgave this, this wicked man. Whenever Jesus goes to his home and Zacchaeus begins this process of, of uh, praising the Lord and just from a, from a changed heart, he, he starts talking about what he's going to do in restitution. Everyone's shocked that Jesus is there. Jesus declares why. And he says it's why he came. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. When the follow-up verse to the most well-known verse in the Bible, John 3.16, declares the exact same truth. John 3.17, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. This is the mission of Christ, granting forgiveness through His shed blood, through His work on the cross. And of course, that message was replicated by the apostles. The apostles are God's messengers. They're specifically selected by Christ to take this message to the uttermost parts of the, of the earth. And you're still doing that today. And the most prolific spokesman of all of the apostles, the Apostle Paul, who penned more Holy Scripture than any other in the New Testament, declares in 1 Timothy 1.15 these words, echoing what God said in Exodus 34 and what Jesus said about Zacchaeus and what John said in John 3.17. This is a trustworthy saying, worthy of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. You and I have been granted lavish mercy and staggering forgiveness from the Lord. In fact, I think the longer that you're, you're saved... The more you study the Bible, the more you recognize the depth of your sin and therefore the depth of God's forgiveness. And it just produces joy and thanksgiving in your heart. And if we've received lavish mercy and staggering forgiveness from the Lord, that's how He wants us to operate toward those who wrong us. In fact, the Bible says if we refuse to do that, it indicates a very serious problem. The parable in Matthew 18, we started in Matthew 18 last week, the parable that, that follows up those questions that, that Peter asked. How many times should I forgive if someone asked me three? You know, some say three, I say seven. Jesus says, says 70 times seven. The follow-up parable that Jesus gives to that is piercingly clear about the seriousness of refusing to forgive. When Jesus says we're to forgive like God, He uses this parable to explain what He, what he means. And, and, and He shows how serious God considers our forgiveness of others. He anticipates our objections, if you will, to the 70 times 7 with a parable about the unforgiving servant. It's in Matthew 18, 23. You probably recall it if you've 
read much of your Bible. A slave owes the king a massive debt and, and he can't repay it. And so the, the king starts calling for collections. And this man comes before this, this king owing 10,000 talents, which the point is it's an impossible amount of money to repay. It would have been several million dollars in, in today's money. And the debt's rightly owed, so the king commands the, this man, his possessions, and his whole family to be, to be sold into servanthood and so he could recover at least a portion. Verse 26 says, This man, falling down before him, says, Master, have patience with me, and I'll repay you all. He couldn't repay, but he acknowledged the debt, and he humbly asked for mercy in judgment. And verse 27 up on your screen gives the master's answer. Here's what the master says to the man who acknowledges his debt and humbly asks for mercy. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. That's a powerful picture about how God responds to repentant sinners. The sinner comes before God convicted of an unpayable debt of sin, and he says, I am guilty, and I will pay whatever I can, but I, I, I don't have enough to pay the debt. And then God graciously, mercifully forgives the entire debt, releases the sinner completely. So what should a forgiven debtor like that do when he is wronged by others? Not even, not even someone his superior, but, but someone his equal. He should treat others the way that he was treated, and that's what the rest of the parable deals with. But, but you know the parable, this man doesn't do that. So what he says in Luke 28 through 30, but that servant, the one that was released and completely forgiven and, and granted mercy, that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a, a hundred denarii, the few dollars. He, he laid hands on him and took him by the throat and says, Pay me what you owe. And so this fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me. I will pay you all. He acknowledges his debt. And he would not, but went and threw him into prison until he should pay the debt. So the man who was forgiven a massive debt turns right around and won't forgive his own servant a much smaller debt. And the king who forgave him hears about it. And this is what he says in verses 32 through 34. It's not on your screen. Just listen. You wicked servant. I forgave you all the debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due him. And then the parable ends with this summary statement, this hammer blow. What Jesus says the point of the parable is. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Now that is a shocking statement. In fact, it's so shocking that MacArthur pointed out that, that it's so severe that people will try to argue away that Jesus is talking to Christians when he says this. But this man 
is someone who is forgiven. And notice what verse 35 says. If each of you does not forgive his brother his trespasses. This is clearly talking to Christians. What that tells us is that the Lord takes forgiveness very seriously. And He'll deal very harshly with us, His own children, who forgive, uh, refuse to forgive someone else. Now last week we saw forgiveness was not just forgetting about it or automatically trusting them again or even restoring everything as it was. But it means that you let go of the hangman's rope and you put it in God's hand. And the point of this parable is if you're forgiven by God and you don't forgive, it's a contradiction of your nature. And you should expect harsh discipline from the Lord. Unforgiveness is a serious, serious thing. And if you're holding that in your heart, it might be why you're not growing. It, it might be why you're having difficulty even... Even this morning, bitterness defiles many, the Bible says. And that's what we dealt with last week. Philemon and Onesimus helped us see how to apply that to, to life. And as far as we know, that's exactly what Philemon did. He, he forgave his repentant slave and restored him to the church. And, and frankly, it's good to look at the practical applications of that, but the concept that you and I as Christians must forgive, I don't think that that's, that that's new ground. I think that you know... That's what God commands of us. The question that's often asked is not, must I forgive as a Christian, but how do I do that? And how do I know if the person is sincere whenever they ask for it? I mean, that's what you think when someone hurts you deeply, or you hear Jesus saying 70 times 7, and then they, they come back to you and they say, will you forgive me? The first natural question that comes to your mind and comes to my mind is, you mean if they just, just say, will you forgive me, then, then I'm supposed to do that? How, how do I know whether they're serious? How do I know whether they'll do it again? How do, how do I know whether they get even what they're, they're asking? I mean, how do I know if they're truly repentant? That, that's what you think if you're in a... If you're in a a deep relationship with this person, and you have, to, you have to receive them back in some way. How do I know if they're not just saying this to get out of the consequences? You, you've thought all of those things. How do I know that they won't do it again? How do I know they won't be like the wicked slave who cried out for mercy in the moment but, but was actually unchanged? And the two questions that we deal with when we, we talk about forgiveness is, how do I do that practically? Philemon helped us with that, but the second is, what do I do with the other person and their sincerity? Is there some way to know whether they've truly been changed? Uh, am I supposed to forgive them even if they haven't changed because God has forgiven me so much? Well, Paul's going to show us this this morning in 2 Corinthians chapter, chapter 7. still requires trusting the Lord, but we're not left guessing about what true repentance looks like. And so the doctrine that goes right along with the doctrine of forgiveness is the doctrine of repentance. And Philemon had the benefit of the Apostle Paul. Wouldn't it be nice if God wrote you a letter from one of the apostles that said, Brother such and such or sister such and such that has sinned against you, is repentant, and, and here's, here, I, I, I know it, I've watched him for the past two years. We don't always have that luxury. So how do we know? And what is repentance? What, what does it look like? Well, the clearest passage in the Bible on repentance, I think, is found right here in 2 Corinthians 7. 
It gives a clear picture of what it looks like when repentance comes to our hearts. Godly sorrow produces repentance. And the word repent or repentance is used 57 times in the New Testament. And and it indicates a change of mind, a change of understanding, a change of perspective that then results in in a changed life. It's a, not just a turning from your sin, that's part of it, but there's something that takes place in the heart and the mind that, that moves you to turn from sin. It's not just a stopping of something, it's, it's an awareness of God and of what sin is, and then that moves you to turn. The Bible tells us that true repentance will result in a change of action, and those changes flow from new attitudes that reside in, in, the, in the heart. You can find that. We could go to many places. Uh, Acts twenty six twenty. I preach that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with repentance. So repentance has, has deeds or actions that prove that it's genuine, that it's part of it. It's not just mouthing words. It's, it's a changed heart and changed action. Re- repentance has been described as heading one way on the interstate, realizing it's wrong, you're heading the wrong way. You ever done that? You ever turned down a one-way street and you're just tooling along and you have no idea that you're in the one, and then all of a sudden you don't see the sign, you see the car coming? Heading one way on the interstate and realizing at some point you're going into oncoming traffic and then, and then you take the off-ramp and then you, you get back on headed the right way. And then in the new direction, as you're headed in the, in the new direction, you begin to see road signs. You look, you know, all right, all the cars are going this way, and, and here's the sign that tells me the speed limit. I know I'm headed in the right direction. I think there are actually three primary texts. We're not going to go to all of them, but I think there are pre, three primary texts in the New Testament that give us a clear picture, a full-orbed picture of the doctrine of repentance. The the first one is, you just write these down. We're going to look at 2 Corinthians 7. Let me give you these two others before we get there. The first one is in uh, Matthew 3. And it tells us that repentance is accompanied by fruit or it's, or it's not real. Look at Matthew 3, 7 through 8. This is the, when uh, John the Baptist was, was baptizing. What was he preaching? Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus picks up that exact same sermon. Repent. The time has come. It's here now. And you remember what happens whenever the Pharisees and the Sadducees were coming for baptism. John says, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves... We have Abraham as our father, for I say to you, almost sounds like Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard, but I say, for I say unto you, here's the truth, that from these stones God is able to raise up children unto Abraham, and the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So he calls them a brood of vipers. It's a, it's a reference to the Garden of Eden. You, you bunch of children of the devil... Here's a contrast to what they say versus what what they do. He says, bear fruit and don't just say to yourselves. Because God's going to say, if there's no fruit that accompanies your repentance, that your salvation is not genuine. It'll be shown by the fruit of your life. So, it's accompanied by fruit. The second passage is 
just as important. It's kind of the other side of the coin, 2 Timothy 2, 23-26, which tells us that repentance is a work of God. We're the ones that turn from our sins, and we're the ones that turn toward righteousness, but God is the one that grants the change of mind. It is a work of His grace. So you should pray for repentance for someone. And this is a great passage to pray. Notice how this ends. Paul's talking to Timothy. Don't get involved in all of these foolish, ignorant speculations, because all they do is just stir up stuff that, that's worthless. Here's how you should be, though. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome. He must not be argumentative. He must be kind to all. Able to teach. It's a requirement of an elder. Patient when wronged. With gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. We're going to see Paul do that this morning in 2 Corinthians. But here's the point. You do that if perhaps God may grant them repentance to the, leading to the knowledge of the truth. That they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. So repentance is accompanied by fruit, but it is a, it's a work of God, and then the... I'm sorry, I didn't put that up for you. You can write it down and read it. The third one, though, is it produces observable evidences. Repentance always produces observable evidences. So Paul says here in 2 Corinthians 7, 1 through 12, that repentance is accompanied by clear and observable attitudes that are in the heart. The change of mind, the change of heart is evident. You'll see it by their fruit, but long before you see it by the fruit of them making restitution or doing something outwardly, you'll see it coming from within, something that God does in them. In 2 Corinthians 7 Verse 11 in particular describes the evidence in the heart when true repentance comes. And Paul actually gives us a list. You hear people say all the time, you can't see my heart, that's true, but you can see the attitudes. And here God gives us a list of the attitudes that we should be looking for in our own heart or, or in someone else. They're displayed in our attitude toward God, toward our sin, and toward others. And so in order for it to be true repentance, it must have all of these three things. What we're going to focus on this morning is 2 Corinthians. It's accompanied by fruit, it's granted by the Spirit through His truth, and this list of seven attitudes will always follow. We'll call them seven heart evidences of genuine repentance. They don't have to write really fast because I'm going to give you an on-ramp to chapter 7. So all of these will be up here for just a few minutes and then we'll go through them one at a time. But there are seven hard evidences of genuine repentance in verse 11 in particular. Everything else packed around verse 11 is the on-ramp and then the, the outflow of it. Verse 11 is kind of the, the x-ray of the, of the heart. Don't you look back at verse 5 though to help us understand how we even get to this list and why Paul is giving this list to the Corinthians. Look at you at verse 5. Paul says, For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. But God, who comforts the depressed or the afflicted, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by His coming 
but also by the comfort with which He was comforted in you as He reported to us your longing, and you could put for me, your longing for me, your mourning for me, <clears throat> your zeal for me. Paul says, so that I rejoiced even more. In, in this list, that's in verse 11, Paul is describing a dramatic change that had taken place in the Corinthian church that Titus is telling him about. And he reminds them in verse 5 and, and, and moving up to verse 11 that things were very different not long ago. That they, were, they were not all of these things toward Paul. They didn't have any of these things in, in their life in this list. The Corinthian church was planted by Paul in the second missionary journey. and He loves this church. He, he spends 18 months uh, there. And after a year and a half... He obviously preaches and teaches and disciples and tries to root this church the best that he can. And, and after he, he leaves, he then hears that there's some blatant immorality going on in the church. And, and so he writes a letter to them. We don't have that letter. It's mentioned in 1 Corinthians 5. I wrote to you not to keep company with, with, with the immoral people. It's in 1 Corinthians 5. Where, when did Paul write that? Well, he wrote it in a letter before 1 Corinthians. There are actually four letters in, in total. Two are Holy Scripture, two are not. And, and so after Paul writes that letter, while he's ministering in Ephesus, he gets another report that the, the Corinthians are, are rife with division. They're, they're, they're splitting up and they're dividing over who baptized them. Is it Peter? Is it Paul? And they have all kinds of questions about the resurrection about celibacy, about, about issues with tongues, all of that. So Paul writes 1 Corinthians to them. And he sends Timothy to help them work out the matter. But the issues don't get better, they get worse. And so Timothy or someone then reports to Paul that false apostles have come into the church and they're bad-mouthing Paul. The church has turned on him, people in the church. These apostles are preaching a false gospel. And worse, the Corinthians are listening. And this is grieving the apostle Paul. And knowing they were in deep trouble, Paul drops his ministry in Ephesus. He goes back to Corinth and he, he confronts them. And much to his chagrin, when he gets to Corinth, he doesn't find a, a willing group. He finds opposition. This is what Paul calls his painful visit in chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians verse 1. He's not successful. He doesn't turn them. They won't listen to him. And some in the church don't defend Paul. And even worse, some have already taken up the, the attitude of the, of the false apostles. And I want to tell you, there's no greater pain than disloyalty from, from people that, that you've loved and you've poured your life out for. No greater pain to watch somebody that you've discipled, led to Christ, or, or, or you, you've spent a, a lot, number of years pouring into, walk away, and then turn on you. It, it, the pain is, is, is almost like no other. And so Paul, fearing that him staying there and continuing with the confrontation is, is going to make things worse, he leaves. And sometimes that's the appropriate thing to do, leave him alone for a period of time. But when he gets back, he writes them what he calls a severe letter. So he leaves and he writes to them this letter that he's talking about here that made them sorry. And, and he sends Titus to take the letter to them. Now you can imagine with this pain and angst in Paul's heart, sending a, a severe letter that's going to rebuke them after it didn't go well. And he sends Titus. You can imagine how Paul is waiting 
waiting to see how will they respond. Uh, will they finally turn and, and repent? And it's agonizing. And he finally can't take it any longer, so he sets out to look for Titus, who meets him with word that the Corinthians had repented. <laughs> and that's what's recorded here. What joy when someone actually repents. Look if you would at verse 8. This is what Paul writes about the sorrow, the letter that he, that he calls. He's rejoicing because... because they were changed, they'd turned. But, but verse 8, For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I don't regret it, though I did regret it. I mean, when I was waiting to figure out what, how you would take it and waiting to hear from Titus, you know, there's no email, there's no texting. He doesn't know how they took it. When that happened, I did regret it. For I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. It was temporary sorrow. Now... I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. Now what Paul says here, is, I think, is very helpful. Not only when you're trying to discern if someone is repentant, but, but also if you're the one that has to call them to repent. Because Paul says he does not enjoy inflicting the, the pain. He was a reluctant but willing agent of God. And that's what you should be. Reluctant, but willing. And realize that you're an agent of God. You're not going to do the repentant, uh, work the repentance the Lord is. He says, I, I don't like that my letter made you sorrowful, but it was necessary. And confrontation is necessary in the Christian life. But I do rejoice that it made you sorrowful under repentance. One commentator says Paul gave them here the parent speech. You know what your parents said to you whenever they spanked you? This hurts me more than it does you. This is the speech that he's given them here. And it did hurt. But you also know that your parents did it because they loved you, right? I think the point here is Calling someone to repentance in a biblical way is one of the hardest things you will ever do, but it's also one of the most loving things that you can do. And if you don't like confrontation any more than I do, it's something that you have to steel your heart toward doing. Read the passage where Paul says to Timothy, I'm not giving you the spirit of cowardice, but of love and of a sound mind. It's but it, you grieve over it. Paul grieved over this. He was depressed, he said. It means he was afflicted. He agonized over it. I mean, he was worried. He was too harsh when he spoke to them. Uh, he, he, was, he was worried like you if he said things correctly. Wow, what if that paragraph in, you know, in the severe letter, should I have left that out or should I have put, it, put that in? He no doubt stayed awake praying that they would listen and they would turn. And, and he probably took great pains over every word that, that he wrote. But he didn't regret his love for, for them that moved him to write it. And he rejoiced with the same intensity when he heard they listened. Uh, look at the end of verse 7 again. And he reported to us, your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. The opposite of the, of the agony. So calling someone to repentance is not just dropping the Bible bomb on them and just saying, deal with it. 
It's not only confrontation, it's spiritual surgery to save one's life. And the patient is like your own flesh and blood. But it must inflict pain to the point of repentance. And it's not only necessary for them, it's pleasing to God whenever that pain comes. This is one of the ways that you can know that what you're doing, even though they, they squeal and they wrangle and may even bite you, is one of the ways that you know that it's your motive for doing it. You know that it's right. Look, if you would, at verse 9. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Paul says the Corinthians were made sorry by his severe letter, by his confrontation, according to the will of God. It was God's will that they were made sorry. And the result of that was so that it wouldn't lack something. You were made sorrowful according to the will of God so that you may not suffer loss according, uh, uh, in anything through us. All the spiritual benefits that someone loses whenever they were in sin, the spiritual benefits that the Corinthians had, had lost being, being in sin, being separated from the Apostle Paul. All of the the, the loss that came where Paul had to direct his prayers toward their repentance rather than them understanding the gospel and and growing in Christ. According to the will of God here simply means that this is the kind of sorrow that God desires you to have over your sin. He wants you to feel shame and sorry, uh, sorrow over your sin. It's according to His will to do that. You should feel shame and sorrow over your sin. And someone else might have to help you do that because you're blinded or, or numb. It's not because he enjoys watching you in pain, but, but because it's right to feel guilty when you're wrong, contrary to what the world says. Isn't it the world trying to just, just take all of that away? Remove guilt of any kind? Well, you remove guilt, you remove the, you, you remove the motive for repentance. And so God also says that they're missing out on the, on the blessings. The song says, Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Well, you suffer loss of many more things, many more things whenever you're in sin. The same phrase Paul uses to suffer loss is the same phrase that he uses in 1 Corinthians 3 when he talks about your works being burned up. If any man's work is burned up, he suffers loss. He loses out on something. He's talking about future rewards there. And Paul says when someone is in sin, even a Christian, they're cut off from the many blessings that that come through God's graces. Uh, And you've probably been there. The uh, the Bible is dull and lifeless. Many times I've heard people say, I'm just not growing. I I just, wow, I mean, the, the... the sermons are just just not getting a lot out of them. While the person setting three pews over from you, God's saving them or rocking their world. What's the difference? It's the same message, same preacher, same God. Well, there might be something going on in you. And you lose out on the, the grace of, of growth. The body of Christ is avoided and sometimes disavowed. The conscience is not clear. 
horrible it is to have a, a defiled conscience. The fruit of growth is stifled. That's what Paul's saying. He doesn't want them to miss out on these things. These privileges are, should not be easily forsaken. The privileges that you lose whenever you're in unrepentant sin and the privileges that you regain if you repent. And that's why he's rejoicing. that Now the, the roadway is cleared so they may have these things again. He explains what he means further in verse 10. Verse 10 explains what he means in verse 9. Look at verse 10. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces repentance without regret, leading to salvation, or it's in the sphere of salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. And he's explaining what he means here with this little word for. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God, that produced repentance. It's a change of heart and mind brought about by the Holy Spirit over your sin, And that is the kind of sorrow that pleases God because it leads to a new direction, a change of of life. So let me say it as plainly as, as I can, as one writer put it. There is no way to repent apart from some level of sorrow. Or even more directly, you are not repentant if you're not sorry over your sin. But that level of sorrow, Paul says, is very light compared to the amount that you'll feel if you you don't do it. He says no one who ever does it and and repents regrets. No one who ever goes through the the godly sorrow that leads to repentance ever regrets it. (laughs) Notice the comparison here. He says there are two kinds of responses to your sin. So even when somebody like Paul confronts you with a severe letter, there's still two different directions that, that, that a person can, can go. He says there's godly sorrow that leads to repentance, or there is human regret. Paul calls it worldly sorrow, or sorrow of the, of the world. But the sorrow of the world, in verse 10, the end of it, it produces death. It's in the realm of death. It has no life to it. It doesn't bring about anything good. It's sorrow that's shallow. It's sorrow that's worldly. It's sorrow that's, that's human. It, it, it's, it's feeling sorry that you got caught. It's a sorrow over what you lost. It's a sorrow over your reputation. A sorrow over the consequences that, that, that may have come because of it. And, and it doesn't lead to, to true repentance. I mean, you may have pangs of that in the, in the beginning whenever God's beginning to, to work this, but somebody who's genuinely repentant doesn't care about their reputation. They don't care about what they lost. They only care about being right with God. Paul says this kind of human regret is temporary and it doesn't produce anything lasting. MacArthur said the little phrase leading to salvation or to salvation means this kind of repentance is in the sphere of salvation That is to say, it transcends, it's not human, it's not psychological, it's not emotional, it's not circumstantial, it's not behavioral, it's spiritual. Because any other sorrow short of that does not produce repentance and salvation, it produces death. There's nothing in that human regret. There's everything in the godly sorrow, and that's the the difference. You want godly sorrow, you don't want human regret. 
And that's all the on-ramp of how Paul gets here and what he notices, the great change that happens in their heart. But, but how does Paul know which the Corinthians had? How do you know which you've had? Godly sorrow or, or human regret? Well, that's where Paul helps us with this clear guide in these next verses. And if you would, at verse 11, here's the first heart evidence. He says, For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow, has produced in you. So it's, it's something that, that happened in them, this, this sorrow according to the will of God, and it's producing something in them. And then he gives this list. What vindication of yourselves, what earnestness, is the first word that he starts with. So the first evidence of genuine repentance is it's accompanied with earnestness about your sin. Notice Paul starts with the word behold or look. I mean, it tells you right there it's observable. He calls them to notice what he noticed. He's saying what a change has taken place in your life. Look at what this sorrow manifested. Observe what is coming from, from, with, from within your heart. Behold what God is doing in you. It's an exclamatory statement, which means it's not fuzzy, or, or you didn't have to look hard to see it. It was very clear. The idea here is that if someone is genuinely repentant, if you are genuinely repentant, God has brought that to your heart, it's, it's not like I have to get out the magnifying glass to see whether, whether you're actually repentant or not. I mean, it's evident to everybody. There's a, there's a clear change. There's a line that's been crossed. And you're running as hard and as fast as you can away from your old life toward a new one. And notice it's what the godly sorrow produced in them. And he sees an earnestness about their sin. It's a word that means it's an eagerness to change, uh, an energy to throw off sin and pursue what, what, what is right. It's a seriousness towards the situation and, and towards the sin. It's an eagerness to pursue righteousness, to be earnest. And in salvation, a change happens that's palpable. You, you can recognize it. The God that you once hated, as one said, you begin to love, and the sin you once loved, you begin to hate. And Paul says in repentance, when godly sorrow comes to your heart, it's the righteousness that you were once indifferent to, you begin to pursue with, with all of your being. And, and the sin that you once engaged in, you begin to forsake. And you do both with intensity, with an earnestness. So if someone comes to you and says that they've repented of sin and you find that you're, you're having to drag them toward God or drag them away from sin or convince them of what they need to do is, is right or sweet talk them in some way, there's a good likelihood that they've not repented. This word means there's no reluctance. You don't have to apply any pressure or threaten them with Bible verses. They're eager. They're ready. They go after it. In fact, you have to get out of the way so they don't run you over. But he gives another evidence here. It's a heart-level evidence. And it's a vindication of testimony. The King James says, What clearing of yourself, Paul observed. It's kind of a strange way to say it. Or what, probably what you think. Maybe not a strange way to say it. It's what you think. Clearing of yourself. But um, it almost sounds like self-defense. This is not self-defense. It's exactly the opposite of that. It means a desire to change your association with your sin through a changed life. You want to clear your name. You 
recognize that you've now been associated with evil, with darkness, with sin, and you want to clear yourself of that. You want to do that through confession and repentance. Paul says when repentance comes to a person who falls into sin or they become associated with it, they desire to cease the association. And beyond that, they desire to be associated with the repentance. There's a strong desire to make up for their sin, to rid themselves of of the gifts. They want to vindicate. They want to remove the... Uh, any doubt. They want to restore trust. They, they want to clear their testimony. They, it's clear. I, I'm not that person anymore. Whatever you thought, whatever you saw, I did it, but I'm not that person anymore. And whatever I've got to do to show you that I'm not, I'm going to do it. It's that idea. Because a person can have one testimony before men and another before God, and now there's a desire for, for them to match. They want their repentance as widely known as their sin. So if someone tells you that they've repented, but they push back on questions or accountability, they likely haven't repented. Here's your third one here. Third is indignation. An evidence that Paul observed, you should observe if in your own heart, if you're repentant, this godly sorrow produced an indignation toward themselves and their sin. You ever been mad at yourself for your sin? I have. How could I be so stupid? What was I thinking? Where it wasn't even getting waylaid like Galatians 6, 1 and 2 where you're just kind of bumping along and You get overtaken in a fall. That's the idea of Galatians 6, 1 and 2. I'm going along through life, maybe I'm not paying attention, and wham, you get sucker punched with sin and you fall. You think that. What could I have done differently? But but then there are other times where you just look it right in the face and you go at it. And then you get mad at yourself over over your sin. Paul says, that's good. You ever confronted someone and they got mad at you? Paul says, that's bad. And it's likely an indication that they're not repentant. Well, wait, wait, wait a minute. What, what are you doing poking in my life? What, uh, now, are, are, you, are you following me around? Who, who, who made you the, the sin police in my life? When you get that kind of attitude, very evident that there's no repentance that's come to the heart. Very evident there's no godly sorrow. Because repentance involves indignation toward the wrong that you've committed. It's a word that means anger. There's an anger aroused by the thought of something that you have done that, that is wrong. Like, it's, like, it's like what you feel in your heart whenever you, you hear about abuse or the poor being fleeced by false teachers. There's something in you that's just anger. In true repentance, it's not anger toward the person who confronts you. It's anger toward the wrong that you've done and the fact that you did it. It's a holy disgust about what you've done and a hatred of the fact that you did it. That's an evidence that God is at work in your heart. It's a reason to rejoice. It's not some form of penance where, where you say, oh, I hate myself, I'm just a dirt bag. You know, I'm like, what was the little guy, pig pen on Charlie Brown, walks around with the dirt cloud over him all the time? That's not what he's talking about here. It's a righteous indignation towards sin. 
It's a God-wrought loathing that you're the one who, who did this. You sinned against the Lord. And when you come to your senses and you start to think about it, you, you're outraged at the betrayal of, of God that you committed. So again, if a person tells you that, that they're repentant and that they defend themselves, it's a sign they're not repentant. Because that is an indication they fail to understand the depth of their sin and that it was against the Lord. Fourth one on the list, there's an evidence of fear. Paul says, For behold, what earnestness this very thing has produced in you, what vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear. It's the word phobos where we get phobia. Arachnophobia, scared of spiders. It, it, the word in Greek means fear or terror. One of the things I often hear whenever I'm confronting someone or counseling someone heading down a wrong road and, and you're doing what Paul did here, you're going to them and you're trying to get them to, to turn before they, they pull the trigger on something and make some, some life-altering decision and, and you Put them in a corner, you, you, they clearly see that, that, that they have to choose. Either they're going to listen to what you say, what the Bible is saying, or they're, or they're going to go to somewhere else. They, they try to squish around that and they say, well, well if, if I'm wrong, God's a loving God and He'll forgive me. It's the exact opposite of this word. When a person is repentant, they're, they're struck with a fear of God. They don't think, well, if I, if I, if I go through with it, God will forgive me. They have a renewed awareness that He is there. And there's a terror of, of offending Him that produces fear, an awareness of God that produces fear. It's like what Peter experienced after the fishing miracle in Luke 5.8. You remember when, when Jesus tells Peter to fish on this side of the boat and they catch all the fish and Simon Peter sees it, he realizes it's a miracle and... He fell down at Jesus' feet and he says, Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. There's a moment of awareness. He's struck with an awareness of God, a fear. That's the idea here. He was frightened to be near the Lord. One writer says, Your irreverence turns to reverence. Your bold sinning turns to fear that uh, the holy God might be dishonored. And you have a new sense about him and about, about yourself. This is the exact opposite of what Romans 3 says is in a sinner's heart. Romans 3 ends with there's no fear of God before their eyes. Proverbs says the fool is said in his heart there is no God. And Romans 3 says that they don't even fear him. So if someone tells you that they're repentant and there's no fear... Or they think flippantly about God or His forgiveness. They're not repentant. The fifth one. Two more after this one. The fifth is a yearning or longing for restoration. Paul noticed this. There's a, there's a longing, a yearning. How do you notice yearning? How do you recognize longing? Well, it's a longing for restoration. Restoration of relationship to God, restoration of relationship to those that, that the person's wronged, a restoration of 
relationship to your church. When someone goes into sin, they, they typically begin to, to move away from godly people or the church or relationships that, that, that they're convicted by or may call them to repentance. They, they go away from those things. And so, so what happens when godly sorrows work? They start moving back in, the, in that other direction. They long for those relationships to, to be restored. They start coming around again, coming to church again. The believer will not remain in fear forever. Though That'll move to a longing for fellowship that, that, that they once had with, with God. That's what this word means. It's a yearning or aching for something, a searing desire to be cleansed and go back to fellowship with God and have the, have the blot removed. You just want a right relationship. You don't care what it costs you. You'll do whatever, whatever, whatever it takes. I think David is a great example of this this yearning that, that's there. If you read the penitential psalms like Psalm 51, I mean, you can just hear it in David's voice. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't cast me away from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. It's a, it's a, it's a yearning, even in his writing. And you can hear that in the voice of someone who's repentant. And you'll see that in their actions. To someone who says that they're repentant, but they, they don't have an intense desire to be right with God and others. They're still isolated. They're still separated. They lack godly sorrow. Number six, there's a zeal for justice. These last three kind of go together. Paul says, behold what zeal he's observed. Some of your translations may say jealousy. It's, it's the same word. It's a... Uh, it's a zeal that God's name would be defended by seeing justice done, and in this case, yourself. Sometimes translated jealousy because it's the idea of loving something so much that you hate anyone or anything that harms it. So you love God and His testimony and His church so much that you hate yourself and your sin. And you want justice done, even toward your own sin. And, and you want that because you've harm to the God that you love. I mean, this is a dramatic change for a sinner. When you get here, a desire for justice, I mean, you ask for mercy, but you desire justice, it's a dramatic change for a sinner because someone who's in sin cares nothing about anyone other than themselves. I think this is probably one of the most obvious or shocking parts of, of the list. They, they may think they care about God or others or someone who's in sin, but they don't. But when sorrow over sin comes, they, they flip. They care nothing about themselves. They only care about Christ's name. They want justice done. Even against themselves, there's no pushback, there's no defense. You may even have to protect them from their own self-inflicted justice. They go above and beyond. They, they don't just make restitution. They, they want to give it all back, like Zacchaeus. You know, Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Lord... Look, I, here, now I give half of my possessions to the poor. If I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to your house. Why? Because he gave all that money? Made it right? No, because his heart was changed. He had godly sorrow, which led to repentance. So when a person tells you that they're repentant, but they're trying to get out of consequences, and you know, maybe I, I don't want this, and... It's not a good indication because a repentant person wants justice done 
even toward themselves. And they even pursue it. The final attitude there, number seven. There's concern for recompense. If the sixth one is a desire for justice, then this one is its pursuit. King James calls uh, this one revenge. Paul observed a whatever-it-costs-me kind of attitude from the Corinthians. So someone who's truly repentant no longer tries to cover or defend themselves. They, they're more concerned about what it cost God and the shame that it brought him. So there's no self-protection. There's no covering. There's only I did it, and I take whatever comes. I, I recall a man who was caught in a horrible crime... He'd been sinfully immoral and manipulative of a teenage girl who was very troubled herself. He was a youth pastor. It was a case of sexual abuse. Thankfully, he was caught. And Whenever he was, he cried that he repented and asked other people to pray for him. And then the time came for his trial, and in his defense put forth a theory that deflected blame away from himself and even and even implied that part of it was the, the girl's fault. It's not a repentant person. Someone tells you that they're repentant, but they're looking to get out of the consequences. Godly sorrow has not come. Notice how Paul summarizes this whole list at the end of verse, verse 11. What avenging of wrong, the end of verse 11, in everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. This is demonstrable. This is, this is something that can be observed and then something that is, that is worked out. And they want to be innocent of the matter, the, of being marked with these, these false apostles and the sin that they've committed. And Paul says, in all of these things, in every way, you, you demonstrated this. So it's evident. Again, Someone's repented. You're not having to pull your magnifying glass out and tell, try to, try to find something in there. It, it's clear to them, clear to you. You may have to lead them through some doubt, but it's clear. They displayed an earnestness, a vindication, an indication of fear, a longing, and a zeal because repentance brings a transformed heart, transformed life that comes from a transformed heart. And Look at what he says here in verse 12. He goes back to the letter. So although I wrote to you, Watch how Paul summarizes this. It was not for the sake of the offender. It's the person that was leading this, evidently, in the Corinthian church. And it was not for the sake of the one offended. It's, Paul's talking about himself there. He was the one that was offended. This is a figure of speech. But here's why I wrote. That your earnestness on our behalf might be made known to you in the sight of God, Paul wrote that not only would they repent, but it would be evident to them and it would be plain in the sight of, of God. In verse 13 he says, For this reason we have been comforted. Just as there is few things more painful than having someone close to you turn, there's also few things more rejoicing than whenever that person actually repents. It's almost like whatever they did when this kind of repentance comes just kind of just gets washed away. 
Think of all of the things that you've done to God, all of the things that even nobody else knows about, and think about how the Lord treats you. Think about, I mean, if you're genuinely repentant and you're a believer, that's almost like a former life. It's almost like it didn't even exist. It's the way God views it. There's joy in heaven over one sinner that repents, and there's joy in Paul's heart, and there's joy in your heart whenever it, it actually comes. So what about you? Is what your repentance looks like? Do you have godly sorrow or human regret? If, if you've been granted godly sorrow and you have a clean conscience and all of those things that we went over, rejoice. There are many privileges that come to a person who's walking in the truth. But if not, hear what Paul says here. You can have it. It will take pain. But you'll never regret the pain that will bring about true repentance. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for your word, how clear it is. Thank you that you make it plain through preaching. Thank you, Lord, that you tell us you know that our frames are but dust. We are weak and frail. And that even after we come to Christ, there will be times of sin, maybe even deep, horrific sin. And you knew that even before you went to the cross and before you saved us and you made the provision for all of our sin, past, present, and even future. Because of that, we're secure in you. So thank you, Lord, whenever you bring godly sorrow that works repentance. We want you to be pleased and your name to be praised. So help us live this way. In the name of Jesus. Amen.